You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul discusses the meaning of the names Shem, Ham, and Japheth, explaining that the verb to dwell in Hebrew pertains specifically to tent dwelling, another notable breadcrumb reflecting his broader thesis about shepherdism in the Bible. He concludes by taking our questions on the first appearance of the word covenant in the Bible and the link between the nakedness of the progenitor and the lifeblood in Genesis. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Japheth enters under the blessing by entering under the tent of Shem. Remember, or we shall see in chapter 10, that the Japhethites are the Greeks, okay, the nations, those who come from the isles, and so on and so forth. They are blessed, but indirectly. That's very important to remember. Indirectly, not directly, by entering under the tent. Ham, I said this several times, but let's say it here in preparation for chapter 10, that the areas of Ham and Shem, as we shall see, are overlapping, which means they are the same reality, but functionally different. Ham means heat and thus ire. It's the curse of God. And Shem is the name that brings the blessing. So Shem and Ham are the same people, but behaving differently in one area, which is the Syrian wilderness. Japheth comes from outside, remember Alexander of Macedon. But he and his progeny has to get the blessing by entering the tent of Shem, in other words, by following the shepherd life to become like Shem. You see how we have a parallelism between this and the earlier story of Cain. He was the planter, the one who is settled trees and bring the fruits, whereas his brother was the Roetzon. It sounds a little bit complex, but I hope my hearers are making the effort to hear the original so that they can perceive the connection. And there is a play on the roots of Japheth. You have it in English, God enlarge Japheth. Okay, when you hear it in Hebrew, Yaft Elohim Yefet. Yaft Yefet. That's the original. May God really turn Japheth in a situation 
where he would be blessed, but then he would have to dwell in the tents of Shem, Wayishkon from Shakan to dwell. Remember the word Shekinah and so on. It's basically the dwelling in a tent. Later, one can apply it also to buildings and so on. But basically, that's the meaning. And you have it through the Greek, by the way. Notice, Shakan, Shakan. If you hear the Greek, Skini. S and Sh are practically the same letters. So we have the same three letters. Sh, K, N, and in Greek, S, K, N, and the skinny is the tent, which means you live in a tent. <laughs> and this is, as I say in my book, even the Greeks did when they had to go to war. I mean, they don't bring buildings with them. They have tents. So the tent is a basic element. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Notice way back, I said to you, in the case of the descendants until Noah, the division was between the span of life until the first son and then the span of life after the first son. But here, in the case of Noah, the division is done by the flood. Why? Because his situation is really special. He straddled the flood in his life. And that is already the good news, that Noah was before the flood, during the flood, and after the flood. He was not eliminated by the flood through God's will and permission, and only then you have the total number of the lifespan of Noah, and the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. When you hear the total number followed by he died, you cannot but recall the previous forefathers in the progeny of Adam. So again, very important chapter, this chapter 9, and it prepares us for chapter 10, which is the table of the nations through the three sons of Noah. Obviously, the following chapter begins with Wa'ele and these, Toledot, the Toledot, Bene Noah. You see, it's the first time that you will have, and we'll talk about that next time, the Toledot of three sons together. Only later in chapter 11, and we'll see why we have a concentration on the Toledot of Shem. Going through this chapter, one of the things I couldn't help but notice is this motif of the covenant. You emphasize that it's not with Noah, but with all flesh. Can you talk about that covenant and why this is such an important part of this section, since this is the first time we see this word? I like your comment about the first time. You learned your lesson, Richard. So it's very important that whenever you hear later covenant, you remember that its first appearance was with the totality of creation. Now, covenant, basically, it was misunderstood for a long time until it seems in scholarship people found the Hittite text that made it clear that a covenant is not a deal between two equals, 
but it's a deal between a senior and a junior. Usually, the covenant is made by a king, a monarch, that won the war against another monarch, the consequence of which is that the loser becomes the vassal of the one who won. And the one who won puts his conditions for me to keep you alive because he can destroy him, but he allows him to remain alive on the condition that on a yearly basis he would have to give him so many of the flock, so much gold, so much silver, and you see it in the Bible. So let's remember this because when we get to the covenant between God and his people is not that he was making a deal between two equals. The first thing to remember is that the people have no voice. It's God who speaks all the time and he's putting his condition. And if they do not abide by his condition, then he will strike them with death. So it's clear, at least to answer your question regarding the covenant. But here it is so obvious because the setting, even if it is not between man and God, because you could say they are equal in Genesis 1, he is the image and blah, blah, blah. But then it doesn't work with the rest of the animal kingdom because they are not equal. And the text is forcing you to hear the man as being one aspect of the same basar that is addressed by God in this covenant. So I'm going back to that word basar that brings everything together. So the covenant is made technically with kol basar, which includes the human being and the animals, including the animals of the sea. And perhaps to add here, the fact that in the following covenants, let's move to the circumcision, it's made by the human being. It's the human being that circumcises, not God. You have to do it. But the animals don't do that. But here, the covenant being with Kol Basar, God is choosing a sign for the covenant that is, if you like, touchable only by him. Let's go to Ezekiel, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. And remember, the cloud is an element that is connected with God at the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 1. Okay, so was the appearance of the brightness round about this Lord that is presented at the beginning of the chapter. So clearly, you know, the rainbow is linked directly, if you like, to the divine domain. Remember, way back I said the Shamaim, the author goes quickly upon them, you know, the heavens and so on, because it's the domain of the gods, the divine and he concentrates on the earth. 
But the rainbow, from your perspective as a human being, is in this divine domain that you yourself have no power over. You just see it, and that's the sign. That's why it's total blessing. With the circumcision, you have to do it. If you don't do it, then you are not member of the family. With the law, the same thing. You have to do it. If you don't do it, then God can cut you off. You've mentioned several times that the blood, the lifeblood, can't be spilled, right? It's taboo because life is the domain of God. When I hear you explaining specifically that one can't look upon the genitals of your progenitor, is it the same sensitivity? I mean, they're different terms. Yes and no. Let's go for yes, because it points to the origin of life. You come through the activity of the genitals of your parents. In the case of the blood and the nafesh, the breathing, you have the same aspect of life, but not necessarily pointing to the origin. The breathing and the blood are the sign of life, the blood that is moving, streaming. That's the sign of life. So, yes, there is a connection there, but one has to be careful. The blood and the breathing are always signs there with you and with every human being, with animal and so on and so forth. Whereas the nakedness, the genitals of the parents are linked to being a parent. It doesn't apply left and right. That would be, you want to call it a nuance, you want to call it difference. But again, the connection is that you are not in control of life. You know how I dislike the word my life, your life, his life, her life. There is life. And all three conditions related to the nakedness, the blood, and the nafesh, the breathing, have to do with the fact that life is not yours, is given unto you, and you receive it as such, and you have to respect it, meaning to let things continue in that way. You may not act in a way that would show that you are in control over someone else's blood, over someone else's breathing, let alone over your origin. And I stress it in my book that the first commandment in the famous ten words or commandments that apply to the human being is honor which is very powerful. It's the same word from kabod to give value, importance, to glorify your father or mother so that you would have length of days in or on the earth that God has given you. It's a very powerful statement. You can't hear it just honor your father and mother. No. 
because your life will depend on that. So yes, that would be the connection. But one has to do with the origin and one has to do with the signs. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network. 